Um, well, as you can tell, again, like I said, Steve's not here, and this morning we're going to be in the book of James, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, and we'll get there in a moment, but uh, when he asked me to preach today, I didn't quite really know where to go, um, and as I prayed and thought about it, I thought, well, I feel like it was a good idea to continue off in James where I left off last time, I think last year sometime. But, and then I thought, well, my wife and I, we lead a small discipleship group where we're like taking a deep dive into the book of Romans, and we're just breaking it apart verse by verse, just really gnawing at the meat of the word there. And I thought, well, that would be a good idea to, do, to preach from that because it's, it's so full and rich and deep and, and gospel-saturated. And I mean, it could feed hungry sheep for years. But as I was thinking about it and considering it and praying, I thought, well... Like James, the book of Romans, is there's just so much in it that it would be very difficult to adequately preach a, a verse or a passage and expound it, that is, explain it properly where we would get the best from it. And so I thought, well, we'll just pick up from James where we left off last time. And thus far, I've gone through eight verses in the first chapter. And what I want to do this morning is provide a quick recap of what we have learned for those of us who heard those messages and maybe don't remember and then I want to be concise enough for those that were not here or just have no recollection of any of it, um, will be able to be easily caught up. And so uh, then I want to pick up in verses 9 through 11 to see what else James would teach us. So real quick, let me give you a recap. Who was James? Well, I want to remind us here that there are many people named James in the New Testament. James the son of Zebedee, right? He had a brother named John. They were asked to follow Jesus as Peter and his brother Andrew were. We know that there's James the son of Alphaeus. And then there's the Lord's brother, James, who is the writer of this uh, epistle or letter. James became the leader of a very prominent church or the mother church in Jerusalem. That's kind of where Christianity was birthed. And that was when Peter set out to start other churches in the Roman Empire. And this church was filled with what we call Messianic Jews. And really all that means is these were people, Hebrews, Jewish people, who understood the scripture that it pointed to Jesus, that Jesus was the Messiah and their faith was in Christ. And so they were called Messianic Jews. Christian, the word Christian came later on in the centuries and it was actually a derogatory term. James was the leader for this church about 20 years. Then he was martyred, like all the other disciples and many of church's historical figures. They actually threw him from the temple tower, and uh, when the fall didn't kill him, they smashed his head in. So, <laughs> Christianity is not health and wealth. <laughs> Just want to throw that pre-application out there. But in the first verse of James, uh, I talked about the life of a Christian, and the life of a Christian, according to James, had, consists of three things. You and I, first and foremost, must be willing to submit to the Master according to His will. His will, not our own. That is, you must be willing to submit to Jesus in every aspect of your life. And this is a recap, so I can't really break it apart, but every single thing you think, do or say, where you go, what you post, who you spend time with, everything must be submitted to the Master Jesus Christ. The second thing James showed us in the first verse of his book here was that you and I must be willing to draw our very life from Christ not the world. You must draw your sustenance from Jesus. You cannot consistently breathe in the world into your lungs and expect to live a healthy spiritual life. It won't happen. You will choke, you will suffocate, you'll get sick, and then you'll eventually die. 
The third thing was that you and I must be willing to humble ourselves below the master. If, if you and I refuse to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord, that is, he has authority over all of our life, if we refuse to acknowledge that, we're not humbling ourselves under the master. And then the second message was from verses 2 to 4, and we talked about the joy of the Christian. James showed us three things in there. He said the joy in trials. This meant that as a believer, and I cannot stress this enough, as a believer, we are to have, experience, respond with, and display joy in our trials because our trials are not meant to harm us, but to strengthen us and bring us closer to a complete dependence upon God. And the second thing from those verses he told us is that not only joy in, in trials, but joy in tests, in tests. Everybody's thinking, I hate tests, Pastor. I don't want to take a test. As believers, not only do we have joy in trials, but we in the tests that we constantly face. Why? A test is an opportunity for us as believers to respond rightly, which strengthens us and our faith and causes us to look more like Jesus. If we respond wrongly to the test, it becomes a temptation or a solicitation for evil. And the last thing he showed us in those verses was joy and sanctification. Sanctification. I know I'm going fast, but this is just a recap so we get caught up. Sorry about that. Sanctification is essentially becoming like Christ. And sanctification is difficult. It's what trials and tests are for. Like training to compete and complete a triathlon, as a believer, you train to compete in this life or complete this life well. You face trials and tests that either strengthen you or cause you to falter based on how you respond. And all of it is the purpose of finishing the race, like Jesus. And then the last message before this one in 5 through 8, we talked about the unstable Christian. The unstable Christian, according to James, is a Christian who seeks wisdom from everyone else and everything but God. One who does not ask God. We ask our buddies. We ask the bottom of a bottle. We ask our girlfriends, ladies. We ask the co-workers. We ask everybody everything about life and wisdom, but we don't seek it from God. That's what James says as an unstable Christian. And then one who doubts that God is able. We see the waves and the lions roaring of our tests and our trials coming, and we immediately doubt anything good could happen if we continue the journey and stay the course. And the last thing about the unstable Christian James showed us is that a double-minded Christian is one who is unsettled in his or her mind and unsure who their king is. They don't know who they serve. They kind of pick and choose as the, as the waves get higher or lower and decide who they're going to serve based on their circumstances. And so that brings us up to speed on what James showed us in the first eight verses in chapter 1. And what's really remarkable about the way he writes his words is that he has a unique way of, 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 of summarizing every major teaching in the rest of his book in chapter 1. And he sprinkles his words with grace, clarity, and Jesus-like wisdom, but then organizes them in a way that kind of punches you in the gut as a Christian. So if you've not turned there yet, please open your Bibles to James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, and if uh, you would, please, we're going to honor the word of the Lord and stand as we read. If you don't have your Bibles, if you're online or outside uh, or downstairs, it'll be on the screen. <clears throat> 9 through 11. 
But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position and the rich man in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass he will pass away, for the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your glorious word. Thank you that you're a God of grace and mercy. God, I pray today that we would see how important it is to, to rejoice in our sufferings and our humility and humble circumstances. And Lord, that we would see uh, that when you bring us low, it's that we might see the glory and the exaltation. Father, I pray most importantly, though, that you would be high and lifted up and that you would draw men unto yourself, that your spirit would, like a mighty rushing wind, pass through this place to and through your people. And that those that don't know you, Lord, that you would convict their hearts of their sin and draw them onto yourself for the forgiveness thereof and eternal life that you promise. Lord, bless the time now, bless this stammering time, and we ask this in the most precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So just by way of teaching real quick, I just want to quickly note something that we left off in previous verses in chapters 5 through 8. Verse 8 finished by describing a double-minded man. James did. And verse 9 picks up with the word but, just like James did in verse 5. He starts it with but. And but, again, is a reminder that there's some kind of shift going on in the story or the text. And if I tell, if I, for example, if I say yesterday I went to the store to pick up some groceries, but... Before you even hear what's coming, you know there's a shift taking place. But a giant man calling himself Goliath, Goliath robbed a store. You can see from that sentence the word but lets us know that there's a shift in the text, in the content, in the story. There's some kind of shift taking place, and it's usually a comparative or contrastal shift that's taking place. And that's what James is doing here. The comparison is inferred or understood from verses 5 through 8. James is no longer discussing the double-minded man. Now he moves into the brother of humble circumstances, which brings us to the first thing I want us to see here, and that is glory in humility. Glory in humility. If the double-minded man is to expect nothing from God because of lack of faith in God's ability to provide and produce, what then should the brother of humble circumstances do? Well, if we look again at verse 9, it says right there, but the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. This brother is to glory in his high position. What does James mean here? I mean, is, is he talking about somebody who has little wealth materially and financially? Is he, is he talking about people who are humble in spirit? Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven. And that same word that he uses for poor indicates a beggar. But I believe James is referring here to a person who's broken, poor, and downcast in spirit. In spirit. I do believe that James expects his audience to infer, that is, understand that one who is suffering materially or financially is more inclined to experience humility in spirit because the lack of material and financial wealth, and hear me, decreases dependence on self and increases dependence on God. Jesus made the same inference in Matthew 19 when he said, Truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter heaven. Now I know that to some of you that sounded like, Pastor, you're saying I can't have humility uh, in spirit when I have material and financial wealth. 
Absolutely not. James isn't saying that either. And I'm going to explain that in a minute. He's making a general observation. Based on his context, what he learned from Jesus' ministry and the overall environment he finds himself in. I don't believe James is speaking specifically about lacking material or financial wealth with regards to the humble brother, but that is part of it. When Jesus asked, or excuse me, when John the baptizer sent his disciples to ask Jesus if he was the one that they were waiting for, or was there somebody else they were supposed to look for? His response is, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. In fact, he quotes Isaiah. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Now, I'm pretty sure that when he preached the gospel to the poor, God did not immediately drop money bags in people's lap or give them healthy spirit, or excuse me, physical bodies or favor, right? So when Jesus says he's preaching the gospel to the poor, he's talking about the humble in spirit, the poor in spirit. And James is referring to both simultaneously at the same time, but the focus is the spirit. What does your spirit look like? He was preaching a gospel, Jesus was, a life-altering, soul-winning, God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, sin-eradicating message, and he was preaching it to a people poor in spirit. Did these Christians have a lot of material or financial wealth? Probably not. They were scattered because of persecution. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6-7, For we have nothing, brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. But that's not the point of life, is it? The point of life, of this struggle, this mess we find ourselves in, that we willingly subject ourselves to, the content of this, of all of it, fighting against temptation and sin over and over and over again, the whole point of that is to be humble in spirit so that God can exalt you, your status. Humble in spirit to be exalted in a high position from sinner to saint, from lost to saved, from damned to free, from a child of wrath to a child of God, from selfish to selfless, from wicked to holy, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's what James is talking about here. When you're humble in spirit because of your circumstances, sure, we can throw that in there. If you're humble in spirit, take joy, glory in your exalted position because when you're humble in spirit, you realize fully grasping how depraved as a sinner we are. And this is something that we take lightly in our day and age, okay? We hardly ever talk about it, but I'm going to tell you right now, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. We're depraved, the Bible teaches us. Damned by a holy and just God. And this is what it looks like to be humble in spirit. Fully aware of our dirtiness filthiness and our vile wretchedness and then as they hear these words thunder in our mind whoever's name is not written in the book of life for their part is in the lake of fire we understand our eternal situation without jesus the second death and we fully realize all of this sends you into convulsions of fear and hopelessness when you look down at your blood stained hands and cry out god if i die like this i'll sink lower than the grave what must I do to be saved? That's humble in spirit. And then at that moment, Jesus' bloody sacrifice on the cross takes your sins and my sins 
and casts them as far as the east is from the west and transfers you from a humble state into a high and lofty position in his kingdom. Humble circumstances is a reason for us to glory and rejoice because we have Christ on our side and we have an eternal heaven to look forward to. Job says, so that he sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety, humble in spirit. Deuteronomy 26, 18 and 19, the Lord has today declared you to be his people, a treasured possession as he promised you that you should keep all his commandments and that he will set you on high above all nations which he made for praise, fame, and honor and that you should be consecrated people to the Lord your God as he has spoken from humility we rejoice because of our exalted position in the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't matter what you have in this life, what you don't have in this life, that pales in comparison. Nothing can stand against the lofty position you have if you're in Jesus Christ. Glory in humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And how do we apply this to our life? I echo Paul here. In 2 Corinthians, when he said, For we don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. You're not dealing with your circumstances accidentally. You're not dealing or battling depression accidentally. You're not suffering what you're suffering accidentally. You're not dealing with the loss of loved ones or alienation from friends and family because you have faith in Jesus and they don't. You're not facing threats of cancer and our country is not falling apart accidentally. We're not dealing with a distraught past, a, a, a desperate present, and a hopeless or uncertain future accidentally. God has each and every one of us exactly where he wants us according to his perfect and sovereign will. His thoughts are not our thoughts, and our ways are not his ways, says the Lord. We simply respond to everything we're going through and cry out, Father, help me in every way. In all of our circumstances, glorying in our humility, our humble circumstances, Lamentations 3, this verse came to me by way of my son. It says, I called on your name, O Lord, out of the lowest pit. You have heard my voice. Do not hide your ear from my prayer for relief, from my cry for help. You drew near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. Humble circumstances, humble in spirit, exalt you. You rejoice. Brother and sister, be glad and rejoice. The high king of heaven has exalted you from your humble circumstances into his high court. Nothing you could do yourself. Nothing I could do. He did it all. Exalted you. When you're humble in spirit, you are to glory in that. Rejoice in that. That your name is written down in the book of life. Despite what happens in this world, you, if you call upon the name Lord Jesus Christ, repent of your sin, and turn to him in faith, your name is written down in the book of life, and no matter what happens in this world, you will spend eternity with him. That is a humble in spirit circumstance that exalts us, and we are to rejoice in that glory and humility. Rejoice in humility. 
And so the first thing is that James shows us is that we need to, we need to rejoice in, in, in the glory of our humility. We need to rejoice that God exalted us to his kingdom, even though we didn't deserve it. The second thing he shows us is glory and humiliation. If you look back at verses 10 and 11, I'm going to read those again and show you what I'm talking about. Verse 10, And the rich man is the glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Basically what James wants us to see here is that there's a specific reason for the rich man to glory in his humiliation. But we have to ask the question, what is this humiliation? And in order to understand that, we have to ask, why did James write that in the first place? What's going on here that made him, prompted him to write that? First, I want to refer to Deuteronomy 8, which says, Behold, or excuse me, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of, from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. This is the Old Testament here. God is reminding his people that material wealth can become, hear me, a hindrance to obedience. A hindrance to obedience. That doesn't mean it will. It just means that it has great potential to obstruct our spiritual eyesight. 2 Timothy 1, 6 through 10, or excuse me, 1 Timothy, no, 2 Timothy 1, 6, 10, sorry. It says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now I believe that the Bible teaches once genuinely saved, by God's sovereign grace, you are always saved. In 1 John you read, If they, supposed Christians, go out from us, it's because they were never really of us. That's what James or John says. Jesus said that whoever the Father draws will come to him, and he will by no means cast them out. All that the Father gives him will come to him, and no one will snatch them from his hand. Paul reminds us, I'm convinced, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why I believe that James is not talking about a believer here when he refers to the rich man. He's not. He's not talking about a believer. But there is a major issue he's talking about. And that's an issue we see constantly in our day, just like he saw in his day. This, this faceless, nameless rich man was contrasted with the brother of humble circumstances in a very specific way. The difference is where each one of these men put their trust. Each one of these men put their trust. The brother, humble in spirit, sets his hope on his lofty exaltation in God's kingdom. But this man sets his hope on his wealth. He's putting his trust in his position of authority, perhaps, his breezy and easy circumstances, maybe, and most certainly his material wealth. But here's what the point is that James is making. That won't save you. That won't save you. Nothing but Jesus. All that wealth, all the things we gain materially on this earth, 
are only going to last as long as we do. You cannot take anything out of this world. I cannot take anything out of this world. Nobody has a deal with God that says, hey, man, if I could just bring, I really enjoy this thing, I really like my PS4, I really like my cell phone, my car, my boat, my whatever. None of that will go with us. And the point James is making here is not that the believer, but he's talking about the, the lost man who's putting everything he has as his trust. Everything except for Jesus Christ. This man's hope is bound up in the amount of dollars in his bank account. The position he holds over others or the materialism he's so attached to. When our hope as believers should be bound up in one name and one name only. And the name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this man, James says, regardless of what he has, will just like a flower on the grass, pass away. And that's the humiliation. That's the humiliation. I want to work that out. The word humiliation is similar to humility in both English and Greek. They both carry connotation of lowliness, right? We all get that, right? Humility and then humiliation. You're brought low. The difference between the two words is that humility, humility is a, is a lowly estate or disposition of character. In here, you're humble. The humiliation is that you're forced to be brought low. You're made low. Something happens that brings you low and affects you, your rank or your feeling of lowliness. So, so humility, you're low in disposition and character. Humiliation, you're brought low. This man, like all of us, will wither and die. Nothing he has will keep him from perishing in the end. Everyone, no matter money, status, material gain, position, nor circumstance, is always in some way humiliated, that is to be brought low in rank or feeling, when we're faced with eternity. Or as James puts it, when we wither away. Because we're brought low, it makes us think about it. We get sick, or we lose something, or, or something happens, or we're near the end. The person that's not saved always has that thought because of that being brought low, the humiliation. What if all of this is true? What do I do now? As by way of illustration, I want to read a song to you. Again, I like words. Uh, you couldn't tell, right? Um, this is a song that was made famous in, in the 90s, and I think it kind of helps convey the point here. It says, this here's a song about two sets of Joneses. Rothschild, Evelyn, Reuben, and Sue, and just for discussion through random selection, we've chosen two couples who haven't a clue. Rothschild was lucky to marry so wealthy, Evelyn bought him a house on the beach. Reuben and Sue, they had nothing but Jesus, and at night they would pray that he would care for them each. And the rain came down, and it blew the four walls down, and the clouds, they rolled away. One set of Joneses was standing that day. Evelyn's daddy was proud of young Rothschild. He worked the late hours to be number one. Just newlyweds and their marriage started to get rocky. He's flying to Dallas. She's having a son. Reuben was holding a Gideon's Bible, and he screamed, It's a boy! So that everyone heard. And the guys at the factory took a collection, and again, God provided for the bills he incurred. Rains came down, blew the four walls down, the clouds, they rolled away. One set of Joneses was standing that day. So what's the point of this story? What am I trying to say? Well, 
Is your life built on the solid rock of Christ Jesus or a sandy foundation you've managed to lay? Needless to say, Evelyn left her husband and sued him for every penny he had, and I truly wish those two would find Jesus before it gets worse than it already has. Glory and humiliation. The whole point of God bringing us low is so that we'll realize what we need, and what we need is Jesus Christ. Being brought low in rank or feeling is to drive you to a humility of spirit that will hopefully lead to faith in Jesus, forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life before it's quite literally too late. This is why the rich man who is trusting in all he has, all he's done, accomplished, or, attain, or obtained, is to rejoice in his humiliation because it will hopefully drive him to the only person that can save him, Jesus Christ. Listen, if you're a saint piercing yourself for great pains with material, or for material gain, you're playing a very dangerous game with eternity. I'll say it again. If you're a saint piercing yourself with great pains for material gain, you're playing a dangerous game with eternity. It will not save you. You will not take it with you. If you're a sinner yet to turn saint, and what I mean by that is that you have not yet acknowledged Jesus as Lord over your life, placed your faith in him alone, repented of your sin, that means turned away from it, today is the day of salvation. Nothing you have will save you in the end. People say, oh, it's fine, I'll just accept Jesus on my deathbed. 150,000 people die every 24 hours. Every single one of them are saying or thinking the same thing. When it's good for me, when I don't love my sin anymore, newsflash, until Jesus changes your heart, you're always going to love your sin. That's the problem. Don't pierce yourself for great gain if you're a believer because it's going to obstruct your spiritual eyesight. Now, I'm not saying you can't provide for your family and do what you need to do. But what I'm saying is if that becomes so important that you're taking great pains to do it, to achieve it, you're obstructing your spiritual eyesight and that gets very dangerous. If you're a sinner today, but newsflash, we're all sinners. If you're one that's yet to turn saint, that is you have not put your faith in Jesus and repented of your sin, for goodness sake, for the love of God, for, your love, for the love of your life, do it today. Nothing else will save you. Withering away, James talks about, without Christ is a slow, steady, painful, and sure decline, not only in physical appearance, but also in spirit. And this withering, this image of withering, it's like a degenerative disease. It continues to eat away at your spirit until there's nothing left but a broken, hollow, and fragile shell. Nothing on this earth will save you or keep you from perishing just as a flower does. Nothing can or will save but Jesus. I say, Pastor, you say that a lot. I said, yes, I know. It's to get the point across. Trusting in your riches or achievements is about as safe as a bull chasing a matador and will end up with the same result. Death. Forsake your sin, turn to him, and be exalted into the kingdom of God, then glory in your humiliation because it brought you to salvation. And that's the point of being brought low. It's so that God Almighty would be lifted up. Not you, not me. Jesus Christ alone. James says the glory in your humility, glory in humiliation, 
And this last one is the most important. Glory in God. God. I want to note something here. James is actually quoting directly from Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8, which says, A voice says, Call out. Then he answered, What shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. That's what James is quoting. Now look again at verse 11. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. There was in the ancient Near East a hot searing wind known as the Sirocco that would come up from the Mediterranean and it reached speeds of about 62 miles per hour. And it could last for as half a day or it could last several days. What was really particularly bad about it though was wind, heavy winds mixed with sand and moisture that caused immense devastation to the plants, to the flowers, and to the produce of the field. And it had a scorching heat that just burned up everything. James is not only quoting Isaiah, but he's also telling us that all the beauty, all the wonder, all the grandeur of man and the things we accomplish, all of it will fade away. Every last bit of it will fade away when the scorching wind blows upon it. It'll be burned up. And the seriousness about this is that it could occur at any time. It could occur in the night. It could occur tomorrow, next year, next month. We don't know. And this is what James is trying to get us to understand how serious this is. All of our accomplishments, everything we put our faith in besides Jesus will fade away and will not stand when the fire comes. And you know, as humans, we create some pretty amazing things, don't we? I think God made this clear in Genesis 11. When he came down to see the people in the city they made, he said, nothing they propose to do will be impossible for them. That's pretty big words coming from God, the creator. Nothing they propose to do will be impossible for them. <clears throat> Mankind has certainly accomplished much. We've established a nation, walked on the moon, built skyscrapers over hundreds of stories tall. We designed and developed some of the most sophisticated technological advances in the history of humanity. We've erected the Eiffel Tower, chiseled Mount Rushmore, launched the Hubble Telescope, created humanoid robots, and many other wonderful creative works of all the human psyche. But all of these structures, technological advances, and scarily lifelike creations are all built upon one thing and one thing only, the conquest for prestige and power, just like in Genesis 11. Go separate across the earth, fill it, populate it, and love the Lord. No, we don't think so. We're going to stay right here and build a tower and make a name for ourselves. The most recent creation I read about, and if you haven't heard this, you should watch the YouTube video. It is creepy. It's called the giant. This is a 10-story structure made to look like a human with moving arms and a moving head. It sings and speaks. It can be programmed to resemble any persona. Heroes of the past, idols. The advertisement video starts out with this really intriguing music and then a quote from Albert Einstein. Then this lady with a fancy accent starts speaking, introducing all the amazing things this giant can do, right? Tourism, attraction, it can sing. It could even speak words of wisdom. 
you can be scanned and displayed as the giant, the world's ultimate selfie, coming to 21 cities across the nation and world in 2021. Why, you may ask? I'll quote what they have on their website. To use technology to celebrate humanity. To make a name for ourselves and worship human achievement. This too will fade away just like the Tower of Babel and the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. It'll all be burned up in the fire. None of it will matter. Here's the application. James is calling all of us to a sobering reality. If you are humble in spirit, rejoice. Rejoice that God chose to save you and exalted you to a lofty position in his kingdom. That is immensely amazing. If you're relying on the sandy foundation you laid for your life, breath and longevity, or you're, 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 you're built up in the achievements of humanity, rejoicing in the glory of your humiliation, because when you're brought low and you fade away just as the rest, it'll drive you to humility. Here's the beauty in all this, church. All of this. Glory and humility, glory and humiliation is meant to bring glory to God. We've gotten away from this in our modern age. But that's the purpose of everything. Everything, including the bloodstained cross. You and I are not the main characters in this storybook. I know life would feel so much better if we woke up every morning and the world meticulously revolved around us, but it does not revolve around you and it does not revolve around me. It revolves around the Son of God, the only name under heaven, given among men by which you and I must be saved, and that name is Jesus the Christ. The reason God slaughtered his son Jesus on the cross was not because he experienced solitary confinement and loneliness in heaven and bring you to him. The reason he did that is to bring glory to himself. Now that thought makes us feel fuzzy inside, but that's not why Jesus slaughtered, or God slaughtered his son. He redeemed his people to glorify himself because he is worthy. Oh God, is he worthy? Revelation 4, I quoted earlier, you, God, are worthy. Not me, not you. God is worthy. Nowhere in scripture does it talk about God needing anything from us. In fact, he could have just so well went on in eternity without creating us, but he did it. And again, it was to bring himself glory. God doesn't need us in heaven, but thanks be to God that he glorified himself so in the Son through the gruesome death on the cross so that you could be forgiven of your sin and be with him in heaven. And the purpose of all of that was to reach down into the nasty, filthy, dirty, grungy, sin-filled muck we willingly put ourselves in day in and day out and pull us out and set us on solid theological ground. And why, may you ask? He did that so that you and I would be forever changed into a vessel worthy to bring him glory. That is not emotional, feel-good, easy believism. That's not what I'm talking about. It's not therapeutic, moralistic deism. God created the cosmos, the universe, millions and millions of stars and galaxies for his glory. Psalm 19, the, the sky proclaims, the heavens declare the work of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. He did it for his glory. He created you for his glory. He created me for his glory. He humiliates, or excuse me, exalts the humble for his glory. He humiliates or brings low people who trust in worldliness for his glory. 
Because what you do when you essentially trust in anything but Jesus is you say, you here's God, and you exalt yourself above God. And he says, no. Now you're robbing my glory. He did it for his glory. He redeemed you for his glory. He slaughtered his son for his glory so that you and me could bring our king glory. Does God love you? Absolutely. You cannot look at the bloodstained cross of Christ and say that he does not love you because it should have been me, it should have been you. But dear sinner, you cannot look at the same bloodstained cross and think that God is okay with your sin. That's ludicrous. He's not okay with your sin. And he's not okay with your sinful lifestyle. He didn't manifest his glory in creation and send his son to be beaten, mocked, ridiculed, spit on, savagely whipped, and then nailed to a cross so that you could be saved and then continue living a life that's contrary or in opposition to Scripture. You can't, as easier way to put that is, you can't live like Satan on Saturday and come to church on Sunday. That's not why he did it. And don't miss this, please, I urge you, before God changed all of us, every single one of us was on a highway to hell, driving at a reckless pace. We were without hope. If you were trusting in anything today, anything but Jesus Christ, if you're worshiping anything today except Jesus, if you're living your life in any way except the way Jesus says to live it, please, before it's too late, turn to the one who created you, died for you, and called you back to himself. And he did all of that to glorify himself and return you and I to a worthy state so that we could glory in our humility, glory in our humiliation, and praise God in his glory. That's why he did it. That's what we're supposed to do. Are you tired and hurt? If you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, rejoice. You are exalted to the high heaven. Are you trusting in anything else today besides that? One day when he brings you low, whether that's today or next year, you're going to realize those things won't save you. Rejoice in that because it'll drive you to the one that can. And for the love of God, let us glory in God. He deserves way more than we could ever do, but let, him give it, let us give him our all. Let's pray. Lord, Thank you again for your grace and your mercy and for loving us. Thank you, Lord, that you have forgiven us in your son, Jesus. Lord, we know that you love us. I'm not staying up here saying you're not a God of love because you are, but Lord, we cannot look at the cross and say that you are okay with sin because you hate sin so much that you sent your son to take our place. Father, I pray today that um, we would realize that even in our humble circumstances, if we call upon your name, that we are rejoicing or should rejoice because we're exalted to the heaven. Father, I pray if we're trusting in anything else today, Lord, or if we're losing eyesight or spiritual eyesight because of great pains and frustrations we're taking in the world for material gain, Father, I pray that you would call us back to humility through humiliation. Father, I pray for your great mercy and peace to comfort those that need it and for those that don't know you god i pray that you would convict their hearts today and call them upon yourself thank you for your grace and your mercy we ask this now in the most precious and holy name of jesus amen well church